right. Well, beautiful singing. Uh, welcome, Red Village Church. I've not met you. I'm Aaron, and uh, the preaching pastor here, and uh, we're delighted you're with us um, uh, this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to the book of 1 Samuel. Today, our text of study will be all of, verse, uh, all of chapter 24. But for this time here, let me just read the first uh, six verses, and then I'll pray and ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. So 1 Samuel 24. And if you're new to the Bible, it's kind of like in the first, maybe quarter of the scriptures. So 1 Samuel 24, and this morning I'll be reading out of the ESV. So please hear the word of the Lord. So this is what 1 Samuel says. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wilderness of the wild goat's rock. And he came to the shepherd's folds, by the way, where there was a cave. Saul went to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. And the men said to David, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hands, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. When David rose and stealthily cut off the corner of Saul's robe, and afterwards David's heart struck him as he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put up my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Okay, that's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it's good to be here. And uh, Lord, we are here because we love to fellowship and we love to sing and pray. But Lord, um, we know the most important thing, the reason why we're here is just to hear from you speak through your word. And so Lord, I pray that you would use even my folly this morning to preach, uh, to speak to us through uh, your holy scripture. And we do pray that your Holy Spirit would do a great work Praise so on Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this past week I had a phone call conversation with a really good friend of mine from seminary uh, who over the years had some really hard, difficult things to walk through, including the church that he planted uh, shut down. He had multiple people in his family pass away, including a, a 20-year-old daughter who died because of complications connected to a seizure. So some really awful, painful, difficult things to walk through. And this week as we talked, he was caught up a bit, he told me that one of the lessons that he continues to learn through life through the challenges of life, through all the pain and difficulty of life, is that we just have to hold on loosely. No, he didn't say that with any type of cynicism or bitterness, but we just to hold on loosely in life because we never know how the Lord might take away. So because I thought about what he said, I think in theory we know that this is true. We are to hold loosely to the things of life, including the things like, like we love, people that we love, care about, things that we're invested in, even those things we are to hold on loosely. With that being said, we know it's not easy to hold on loosely. What's easy and natural for us is just to hold tightly. Or obviously do that as we hold on tightly, whatever it may be. This is how things can really get sideways for us in life, especially when it comes to things that like we love, we care about, and are invested in. Because we're so tempted just to clamp down on these things in such a way that we're putting like our hope and our identity in them. That in time, they actually become like idols to us that lead us to get so twisted around in our own hearts that we end up doing more and more sinful things as an attempt to hold on to them. Which brings us back to our text of study this morning, which is a text where we continue to see the ongoing saga between King Saul, who has continued to be a cautionary tale for us in 1 Samuel, 
cautionary tale on the dangers of holding on tightly, what that looks like. And think David, who also is a great model for us, especially in this text, on what it looks like to hold loosely in ways that honor the Lord, that actually show a great trust in the Lord. Now, just to set the context before we work through this passage today, just a reminder, uh, Saul and David were at odds with each other, or probably better said, Saul was at odds with David. And the reason why Saul was at odds with David is because the Lord was taking the kingly crown from Saul and he was giving it to David. And as Saul understood what the Lord was doing, rather than declaring, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord, Saul became sinfully obsessed, doing all that he could to not let that happen. So we've read many times already in our study of 1 Samuel, Saul loved and cared about his kingly crown way too much to simply let even the Lord take that from him. So the past few chapters in 1 Samuel, time and time again, Saul was doing all that he could to kill David as an attempt to hold on to the crown. That's actually where we left off in our passage last week. So Saul was in a round and round pursuit of David on a cliff in the wilderness of Moan. And he was doing that until Saul got called away from the pursuit to go defend his land, Israel, from the attack of the Philistines, who were rivals that basically shared a border with him. And as Saul and our pastors left last week to go engage in battle with the Philistines, David and his men left the wilderness where they were and relocated to a place called En Gedi, which is a beautiful area filled with springs of water and caves, which are made for an ideal place to hide. Okay, so that was a little bit of an intro. Look back with me, starting at verse 1 of our passage. And if you're new and you're visiting with us, just keep your Bible out. All I'm going to do is kind of walk us through the story kind of verse by verse. So starting in verse 1, we read that after Saul finished up with the Philistines, he returned to continue the pursuit of David, where he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of the En Gedi. And this information being communicated to Saul, I'm sure it indicates to us just how many people Saul had working for him to try to find David. And over and over again, in the last few chapters, every time David moved locations, like someone would know about it. And someone would rat him out and pass on that information to Saul. So let's not underestimate how much time, energy, effort, resources Saul was using to try to keep his crown, keep his control in his quest to kill David. In fact, in just a bit, we'll see David basically call Saul out for this, using so many resources to find him, resources that should have been used in other places. Verse 2 of our text, as this intel came back to Saul, we see that he rallied together 3,000 of his best chosen men from all over Israel, to go with him to seek out David, David's men, in front of the wild goat's rocks, which is a great name. And as Saul arrived on the scene, we read uh, that he had to go. It means Saul had to go and relieve himself. After all, long trip, one that I'm sure he was in a rush uh, to get to the end, to find the En Gedi, where David was. So as his caravan finally arrived and attended destination of the En Gedi, Saul had to do what we all have to do. He had to go to the bathroom, which for him, was in a cave. And as Saul sought to relieve himself by doing his business, unbeknownst to Saul in the text, we see that the cave that he picked just so happened to be the cave that David and his men were hiding in. As they were hiding, the text tells us, in the innermost part of the cave. Which, can you imagine this scene being played out for David and his men? So no doubt, as this caravan of 3,000 of Saul's men arrived in Gedi, no doubt David probably had some scouts, things like that, that have been made aware of the situation, Right? They would have known the trouble that they're in. He had like maybe 600 men, so here comes Saul with 3,000. This is why he's hiding like way in the back, in the innermost part of the cave. So I'm sure their hearts are like racing with fear of being caught by Saul. 
But now in the text, as they hide, Saul walks right into their arms, where he puts himself in really the most vulnerable of all positions, a vulnerable position that would have made it incredibly easy for David and his men to go and take his life so that they could finally be done with Saul, finally being done by being on the run, done with the immense stress and pressure they were under as they are trying to escape Saul, where David could finally take the crown that was rightfully his, which is basically what we see in verse 4 of our passage. So as Saul was relieving himself, the men like whisper over to David, David, here it is. Here is the day that we all have been waiting for, anticipating would come. I'm sure praying would come. Indeed, the day that the Lord promised would come, where he would deliver your enemy into your hands so you could do to him as you seem good to do. David, this is unbelievable. This, This is evidence of grace. So just go up and finish Saul off. And for the men, there's no doubt. They assume that they were thinking the exact same thing that David was thinking. From the text, even though David indeed did get up, he did make his way over to Saul, even though he did pull out some type of sword or dagger, we see in the passage that rather than using the sword to plunge into Saul and to take his life, instead, David took the sword and he used it to stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And that's it. That's all he did. He didn't kill Saul. He just cut off a corner of the kingly robe and made his way back to his men. That's it. In our text, even that action, just this cutting off the robe, we see that even that was almost too much for David and his conscience. See in verse 5 of our passage, as David cut off the piece of the robe, his heart was struck with almost like instant remorse. So you read that he turned to his men, who might guess at minimal were confused, probably angry at David by what just took place, or maybe better said, what did not take place, as they witnessed David just pass an opportunity to strike down Saul. So in the text, as David turns to his confused, perhaps angry men, we see he gives them like, maybe a little bit of a sermon here in verse 6. Men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, meaning Saul the one who is the Lord's anointed. Men, Lord forbid I put out my hand against him. Do you not see that he's the Lord's anointed? I can't kill him. That would not be right for me to do. It's not right for me to take away. That's only something the Lord must do. Now, a couple quick thoughts here. First, this here is also an example of David that's good for us to see. Specifically, what it looks like to be a man under authority which is something that God would have us to do. Where first, ultimately, we're under the authority of God, his word. But within that, under that authority, we're under the authority of those who places over our lives in positions of authority, including those, perhaps, we don't like. No. With that being said, we're not to blindly follow authority. And at times, it can be a little bit more complicated. We're certainly, and we're certainly not to follow authority of those who are like, going against like, clear teaching of scripture and trying to lead us into sin. That being said, as Christians, like we are to be under authority. That's a clear teaching. I mentioned here in the text, this is a great example of David, being under authority. By the way, if you're looking for some other examples, Matthew 8, if you want to mark that down, Roman centurion interacted with our Lord as a man under authority. Acts 23, the apostle Paul stood before the high priest as a man under authority. 
Second, let me also mention, kind of tied with this, this is a great model of showing respect or reverence for positions of authority, which is something we can circle back to at the end of the sermon. But let me mention here, this week as I worked on the sermon, this is probably what I spent the most time chewing on, just the reverence David had, the respect towards the position of authority, and how he was like holding loosely to the position of a king, even though that was something that was given to him. We see this both in our text today, as he waited officially to be recognized as king, but also at the end of his reign, or towards the end of this reign, how he's holding on, still holding on loosely. As mentioned, we'll come back to this in just a bit. But just, just mark down here how David held on to this position loosely. Just notice, he didn't feel entitled to it, which was certainly true of Saul. Like, he didn't feel entitled to rise up and just snatch it. Keep going, verse 7. As David shared with his men the mini-sermon, as he shared the thoughts and reasons why he could not take Saul's life, we see that he clearly he did so in a convincing way. So he was able to persuade his men with his words, which was to keep them at bay, as David did not permit his men to attack Saul. Let me hit pause again real quick. I mentioned here, this is also a good example in our text of David, a good model for us to follow. When we think about our call to make, make disciples, right? to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is really what he's doing here in the back of the cave with his men. He is helping them see how they are to follow after the Lord. And I think he does it in two really important ways. First, he helps his men to follow the Lord by his words, which is what he did through his mini-sermon, concerning how to treat the Lord's anointed. But he also helped his men know how to follow God by his actions. David didn't do something different from what he told them. Rather, what he was telling them about protecting the Lord's anointed, this was just him saying, hey, follow my aim and conduct of life. See how I am following the Lord, and now you do likewise. This is a real part of discipleship. Words to hear, actions to model after. With David and disciples of men agreeing not to kill Saul, you see that Saul finishes up his business. He rose, he left the cave, and he headed back to his group, you know, probably something like in the valley below. And as Saul got back to his men in verse 8, we see that David once again rises up. And we see that he comes out from hiding of the innermost part of the cave. And soon he goes to like the edge of the cave where he speaks up, this time calling down to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king, which I'm sure shocked Saul to hear David's voice coming from where he just was. So in the text, as David's voice rang out as it reached Saul's ears in the valley below, Saul turns around and looks behind him. And our text tells us what he could see is he sees David bowed down with his face to the ground, paying homage to him which really is an incredible thought, that David would do this. Not only would he spare Saul's life, but now he's even showing honor to the king, which is further emphasized the appreciation respect that David had for positions of authority. The text is David showing physical honor to the Saul by laying prostrate. We see in verse 9 that David now had some things that he wanted to share with Saul, namely in the text, Saul, why is it that you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Now, this here obviously implies that Saul was not simply acting in isolation as he sought to kill David. But this implies that Saul had others in his ear who were like feeding him lines that further engaged his obsessions, his paranoia. Perhaps these are like people who Saul talked about a few weeks back in our uh, chapters uh, we looked at a few weeks back who are benefiting from Saul in ways that they're getting their own power. So, so we don't know exactly who is further planting these uh, seeds of suspicion in Saul concerning David. 
But based on what we see David say in our text, it seems obvious that, not, that Saul did not have good people around him. Like he didn't have good people helping him to grow in godliness and holiness. But it seems clear that he had like proud, arrogant, self-centered, foolish people in his inner circle, all helping to lead to Saul's downfall. Which, by the way, this is why it's so important for us, like people, especially the ones closest to us, who have our ear more than others, that they're like godly people, humble people, who can like build us up, which certainly was true of David and his friendship with Jonathan. In the text, verse 10. As David continues, we read him dismantle the things being said about him by Saul's counsel. He dismantles them as being like untrue. We see how he does this. Basically, he's trying to like reason with Saul. Saul, if I really wanted to harm you, which is what your counsel insists is what I'm seeking to do, if I really wanted to do it, behold, this day, you can see with your own eyes, the Lord just providentially just put you into my hands in the cave. And while you're in the cave, someone actually told me to get up and kill you, which I could have easily have done. But Saul, unlike you, I didn't listen to bad counsel. Brother, I spared your life. And in fact, Saul, not only that, I just discipled my men by telling them that I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. So Saul, if you think that your counsel is telling you the truth, that I'm actually wanting to harm you, be reasonable here. Just consider, I could have killed you, but I didn't. And if you don't believe me, that I could have taken your life, in verse 11, take a look what I'm holding in my hands. Does this kind of look familiar to you? It's a corner of your robe. So that's how close I was to you. Yet, I did not kill you. So what further evidence do you need about my intentions towards you? You should be able to know, you should be able to see that there's absolutely no wrong, no treason in my hands. So, no, Saul. I have not sinned against you. No, Saul. I'm not trying to harm you. No, Saul. I'm not trying to take the throne by force. I'm not doing any of these things. I'm not doing any of these things, even though you've been on this obsessive hunt to take my life. Saul, I'm blameless here. Verse 12, because of that, Saul, may the Lord, may he judge between us, between you and me. And may the Lord avenge me against you. Which is basically, David says, how are we going to let the Lord fight my battles as he sees fit? That's all. As for my hand, just know, it shall not be against you. Think about this. Talk about holding loosely. He's not trying to grab anything here by his own hand and his own strength. Verse 13. Keep going. Saul, as the Proverbs of the ancient says, out of wicked comes, out of the wicked comes wickedness which this quote here seems to be one that's probably well-known in the time period for us. At this point, we don't know the origin of what this ancient saying or who, who started this ancient saying. But it's clear what the text is saying or what the saying is saying. Wicked acts come from wicked people. Which here, even though David was living in authority, even though he's trusting the Lord to fight his battles, we see here he's still being bold and honest with Saul and how Saul was acting. He's not holding back. David clearly is telling Saul here that he's acting like a wicked person. Which, by the way, he was. 
Remember, you know, Saul was being wicked, the end of verse 13. David to Saul, once again, but my hand shall not be against you. Keep going. After David reaffirmed that he's not going to kill Saul, we see that he kind of goes after Saul a little bit again. We read, after all, Saul, whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? Are you pursuing like basically a dead dog? You're pursuing a, a flea. Which this year, this is David not thinking more highly about himself than he ought. So unlike Saul, who's not thinking himself in the lens of pride and arrogance. But here in this text here, he's comparing himself to like a dead dog. To a flea. Like understanding that naked we came from our mother's womb and naked we will return. This year, this is also David further criticizing Saul for spending so much time, energy, manpower in his pursuit of him. And I keep saying for Saul to keep his power, like all the time, energy, manpower. This is all he was spending all of this as king of Israel just to try to kill David. Right? Those things should have been spent other places to benefit others. Yeah, that's not what Saul was doing. Verse 15. As David continued to trust himself and trust the situation to the Lord, he finishes out what he said, I had to say to Saul from the edge of the cave by saying, further words of trust in God. Saul, may the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see it and plead my cause and deliver it from my hand. So again, this had to be startling for Saul to hear this coming from the cave he just left. Verse 16. So as Saul heard these startling words that David just yelled down at him, received him respond back in the text, uh, is that you, my son, David? I can't tell. Is that actually your voice? Which to me, like, this feels like a little bit of Saul being coy here, perhaps pretending like he didn't know who was yelling at him. Maybe he's like trying to buy a little bit of time to process everything that David just said to him. Or you know, maybe perhaps David actually was just far enough away that Saul legitimately could not see who it was in the cave. And whatever the reason of his initial response back to David, wondering who it was, we see it didn't take Saul long to not only recognize that David was calling from above, but also to feel like some weight and some regret, knowing that David was right, where David or Saul could see or hear and understand. Indeed, he actually was wrong here. We see in the text, as the text tells us, Saul lifted his voice and began to weep at the words of David. Now, let me hit pause again real quick here. I mentioned here that one of the first lessons I was taught when I began working in church life was a lesson that taught me that we can't be fooled by tears. That tears don't always mean something significant is happening or going on. Okay, now maybe, maybe, God is at so work in our lives or lives of others that he's drawn us to repentance and faith, that through godly grief, that he is moving us to tears. Maybe, that might be true. However, sometimes, probably more often, we want to recognize tears are just that. They're just tears. They're actually not the work of God, just the work of our own emotions, where tears are simply filled with like worldly sorrow, where maybe we recognize we did something wrong, maybe even acknowledge our mistake or our sin, where we're feeling like maybe some regret, some shame, some guilt, some conviction, but not in ways we're actually wanting to repent and actually make steps that are in line with repentance the hopes that we flee from the sin and not fall into it again. 
couple of times, say it again, perhaps, more often than want to recognize tears are just tears. And that was certainly true of Saul in the text here. They were just tears, tears of worldly sorrow. This is not actual repentance by Saul. And we know that because what we see in the chapters to come, he just keeps doing the same thing that he was in tears about in our text. He just kept seeking to kill David as he kept trying to hold tightly to his crown. So don't be fooled by tears here of Saul. Likewise, in the text, don't be fooled by his words either. The words that came out of his mouth in verse 17. Same thing. Words are just words. If there's not actions tied to them. We know this. It's easy to say the right thing. It's actually hard to follow through with what's being said. Verse 17. Saul is weeping. He yells back to David. Yes, David, you are more righteous than I. For you've repaid me good, where I've repaid you with evil. This is himself, right? In a real sense. In a sense, he's admitting his wrong. Verse 18. And you have declared this day how you've dealt with me, and how you did not kill me when the Lord put you into my hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he actually let him go away safe? It's a question that Saul asked. The blind answer of no. Who does that? Who lets his enemy go away safe when he can easily take his enemy's life? Certainly Saul would not do that. But in this text, Saul back to David. David, that's exactly what you did for me. You spared my life. You let me go safe. So David, may the Lord reward you for the good that you've done to me this day. Verse 20, Behold, more righteous than I, David. Behold, it is clear to me now that surely you will be king. This king of Israel that I'm ruling over will be yours. One that is established by your hand. Verse 21, Therefore, David, please swear to me, please swear before the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and you will not destroy my house. Which also, let me mention here, at least for a moment, Saul is like kind of even accepting what's going on here. That eventually David would be king. Where it feels like he's almost like kind of like letting go of his grip that he's holding on so tightly to. But to keep saying it, chapters come, we see that these are just words just words. There's no real weight. Because next time we see Saul in chapter 26 when we get there, it's basically a replay of this passage of him trying to kill David. So a slight loosening of the grip of power and control, he very quickly camps back down on him, back down on. No repentance, just simple remorse. Keep going, start verse 22 where we see David continue to prove to be more righteous than Saul. As we read that as he heard the request from Saul, David agreed to the request. As he swore to Saul that he would show kindness to his offspring. Now, just a few thoughts here. So first is the agreement that David just made to Saul. I think this is probably more of an agreement that David had already made to Saul's son, Jonathan. As I mentioned earlier, it was like David's good friend. Where multiple times in 1 Samuel, including last week, David and Jonathan like made a covenant with each other, where David promised Jonathan he'd be good to him and to his offspring. So this, yes, this is a, Saul, a promise here to Saul, but this is probably more of a promise that David already made to Jonathan. Second, unlike Saul's cheap words in the text, David actually proved to be a man of his word, and he kept his promise by not cutting off Saul's offspring. You can actually see how that is played out specifically in 2 Samuel 9, if you want to look at that later. As, Samuel, or as David showed kindness to a cripple 
who is Saul's grandson, Jonathan's son, a man named Bephibosheth, who uh, David invited into the king's presence, into the king's table. So David was not cheap with his words, or not just words for saying words, but he actually was a man of his word, kept his promise. Third, also the kindness that David does show to Saul's offspring, to Mephibosheth. I think this is another indicator, just how loosely David is holding on to the crown. I mean, culturally speaking, Mephibosheth, he would have been a major threat to David. Mephibosheth could have claimed that he was the rightful heir to the throne, which, by the way, he actually did do in 2 Samuel 16, as he desired to restore Saul's kingdom. So culturally speaking, for David to best ensure that he would keep his power, his control, to keep the crown, he should have killed Mephibosheth. But he didn't. He showed grace and kindness to him. Even after Mephibosheth desired to reestablish Saul's kingdom, we'll turn to this in a moment, but it's also a good model here of David, holding loosely to that which was given to him. Finally this morning, our text ends. The scene ends. We see Saul headed home, basically with his tail between his legs, and David and his men heading to the stronghold, which I think indicates that David is no dummy when it came to Saul. He wasn't being fooled by Saul's tears. He wasn't fooled by Saul's empty words, so he went back into hiding. Not trusting Saul was actually genuine and filled with godly grief. But I think this indicates that David rightly assumed that this was just like more worldly sorrow in Saul that would quickly evaporate. Okay, and that ends our text this morning. Now, as we close the sermon, what I want to do is just give you a quick character comparison just between Saul and David, which I do think is actually one of the overall takeaways that the author in First Samuel wants us to see, to see these two very different examples of these two men. So I go through Saul here. I'm going to go through a little bit more quickly. Already uh, mentioned throughout the sermon, Saul's example of what it looks like to hold sinfully tight to something. So as as I close, I want to give you just some traits from Saul and what that looks like. And as I go through these traits, if you see these traits in yourself, I'm just going to ask you to, like, repent with, like, godly grief. And as I say that, let me mention there's a lot of things in life that you can sinfully hold on to. It's not just like things like power and control, what Saul was clinging to. We know this. We can sinfully hold on to like a place in life. Uh, we can sinfully hold on to maybe a certain identity. We can sinfully hold on to like a dream or a hope that you have for the future. Really, we, anything that we can start to idolize, we put our trust in, right? there's something that we're sinfully holding on to. So here's just some traits. If you're sinfully holding tight, I'm just going to rattle these off kind of quickly. So you're sinfully holding tight if you're obsessed by whatever this thing might be. Where like, you go to bed thinking about it, where you wake up thinking about it. All throughout the day, this is what consumes all of your time and energy. Uh, you seek to control everything and everyone around you so you can keep this thing, whatever it may be. You're manipulative with your words, maybe even tears, to get this thing or to keep this thing. You're paranoid about the thought of possibly losing this. As mentioned, you're putting like, your identity in this. Uh, perhaps like you're uh, knowingly surrounding yourself with like bad counsel, just so they can like justify your actions and why you're holding on so tightly to this. Maybe you fight with anger in your heart at even the threat that this thing might go away from you. Uh, you have worldly sorrow when confronted by your actions, but you don't really repent. You don't really make changes. Rather, maybe when confronted, hey, you're holding on a little too tightly right now. Maybe it's just like you say the right things. Maybe you admit the right things. 
you know it's just talk. And you quickly return to the same sinful patterns. You're holding on sinfully tight if you think you can't live without this. Because this thing has become an idol to you. Where you're putting all of your hope in whatever this might be. Friends, when we hold sinfully tight to anything that life might bring, like even good things, things we care about, this is what can, and in different levels, this is what will happen. This is why Saul is such a cautionary tale for us. Like he falls into a trap that's so easy for us to fall into. I say, this is, I'm not saying that we can't care about things, certainly we should. There's obviously things we should care about, especially things like we love, people we love. But we just can't care about them in ways that we're like so sinfully holding tight to the point that we're now unable to say that if the Lord gives or if he takes away, blessed be the name. So I'll say it again, if this sounds like you this morning, if you fall into the same trap that Saul fell into, this cautionary tale of Saul, please this morning repent. Turn from it. Make changes that are in line with your repentance. Loosen the grip on whatever idol you're holding on to so tightly. Which leads us to David and his example. Now I do want to mention up front that David is by no means perfect here. In fact, in 2 Samuel, he proved himself to be a cautionary tale uh, as well, where he makes some really awful and sinful sinful actions of his own. This is even why David penned the famous words in Psalm 110, the New Testament actually quotes quite a few times, that the Lord said to my Lord, which indicates that David himself knew he needed a Lord over him to be his Savior, which the New Testament tells us is found in Jesus Christ, David's Lord. So David is not perfect in his example, far from it, But here, I do think he gives us a good example on how to hold on loosely to things in life. So let's go through these things as I close. I want to give you just under the banner being set free. To hold loosely, to be set free so we can trust in the Lord. So I got, I think, five things here. So first, so when we hold loosely, we are set free to trust in the Lord's timing. So in the text, David could have killed Saul right then and there. He could have moved up the timing and when he officially became the king. But he didn't do that. He waited on the Lord, the Lord's timing, for the Lord to provide as he fit. Right? When we hold loosely, we are set free to just trust that the Lord has a good time. Second, when we hold loosely, we're set free to trust in the Lord's justice. That indeed God will make things right. Once again, David, he could have killed Saul. Saul was clearly in the wrong, but David didn't do that. In the text, throughout the text, we see he trusted that the Lord would fight his battles. The Lord, indeed, would be the one who would deal with his anointed Saul. I know this is not easy for any of us, especially when we're feeling like we've been wronged. However, if we're being wrong, you know what happens? Like We want to take matters in our own hands to try to get control of the situations. But friends, we can't do that. We just must humbly trust in the Lord. Trust that he is just. He will pay all that which is wrong. Third, when we hold on loosely, it frees us to trust God's good plan, including his plan for our deepest desires, the things we love most dearly. As mentioned earlier, this is the thing I probably chewed on the most this past week with the model of David. How David just trusted the Lord and his plan for his life. Trusting it was a good plan. And I think we see that really on both ends of his kingship. 
which eventually actually David does become king. You read about this the first time, uh, how David becomes king in the first few chapters of 2 Samuel. So here on the one side of the kingship, the side we're currently working through in 1 Samuel before he became king, we see here he's being patient. He's waiting on the Lord's plan. He didn't try to take the crown that he felt entitled to. Rather, he trusted the Lord's plan would be given to him. The crown be given as the Lord saw fit. Right? He's trusting. God had a good plan. Then on the other end of David's kingship, so David is pretty firmly established as king. And as he's firmly established, he desired to build a temple for the Lord. Remember the story? But the Lord told David, hey, listen, you're, you're a man of war. There's just too much blood on your hands. And so the Lord was going to use one of David's sons to build the temple. And in this text, as this scene unfolded, rather than David pouting or forcing himself into the building project or feeling entitled to be the one who gets to build the temple, David actually willingly stepped back. And he trusted the Lord's plan. Even though that's the thing that David really wanted to do, he trusted the Lord with it. And by the way, not only did David step back, he actually did one better. He actually got all the things ready for his son to build the temple. Friends, that's what it looks like when we hold on loosely. No entitlement. No forcing ourselves into a situation. We're not holding on to something because we really want to do it. We're just trusting the Lord. Trusting he has a good plan. And if he puts something in our hand, great. But if he takes it away, you know what? Blessed be the name. Fourth. This is kind of a quick one here. When we hold on loosely, it allows us to be a blessing to others. You know, throughout this passage, last several passages, all we've seen Saul do is to use others to fulfill his own agenda. But here in the text today, David's model, he was a blessing to others. He was a blessing to help them see that it wasn't right for him to stand up and kill the Lord's anointed. Friends, when we hold on loosely to the things of life, it just gives us so much freedom, so much opportunity to bless others, to to make disciples, to teach them and show them what it looks like to follow after the Lord. Last one, most importantly. When we hold on loosely, it allows us to cling to Christ. Now, as mentioned, David is a good example for us to follow, but he's not a perfect one. But friends, there is a perfect one. Jesus Christ. He's, he's the one who is perfect in all things, in every example. He's the one we must hold on to. He is the one we must cling to, to him, to him alone. Trusting that he is the one who, through the incarnation, who did it all for us, that the word became flesh, who came at the fullness of time, the right time, where our Lord Jesus, the true Christ, the true anointed, the God-man, came to us by holding on loosely to the things of life including the eternal crown that was promised him by his heavenly Father. I think we see this most clearly in two places in the life of Christ. First is when he's tempted by by the devil in the wilderness. Remember that? How the devil tempted Christ to take the crown before it was time, which Jesus refused to do. The second is when our Lord stood on trial, where he could have called a host of angels to come rescue him from the hands of evil men. But while he was on trial, our Lord remained silent He trusted his heavenly father in the plan that was set in motion before time began. And he trusted in a way that Jesus actually went to the cross to die in our place, to take on the punishment of our sin, even our sins of holding on tightly and making things an idol in our hearts. So that through Jesus, as he died, the veil that separated us from God, that's pictured in the temple, 
was torn. Torn in two, from top to bottom. So that through the death of Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection from the dead on the third day, all who by faith turn from sin and turn to him with godly grief, they'd be forgiven. Amen. Why? Because on the cross, justice has been satisfied. Jesus took on the punishment, and it is finished for all of his people of faith. And friends, you know what? Not only that, not only forgiven, but the good news is that we're even brought into an eternal relationship with God, into his eternal joy, so that for all eternity we could sing to Jesus as our blessed Lord, because he's the one who took away our sin only to give us eternal life, an eternal life that he promises that he will hold tightly to his people of faith in ways that we will never be taken from his hands. So yes, church, words of my friend from seminary, they're sound. In this life, we must hold loosely. We must hold loosely in ways that we're clinging to Christ. As the old song sings, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. So friends, this morning, cling to Jesus Christ, trusting that by faith, ultimately, he is the one who's eternally holding on to you. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you'd forgive us. We put our hope and our trust in things that are not you. And Lord, it's so easy and so tempting for us just to try to hold on to so many things that we make idols out of them. So thank you for forgiveness. And this morning, Lord, I do pray that you would help us to continue to cling to Jesus and help us to trust that indeed he's the one who is ultimately clinging to us through repentance and faith. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.